the Revolution Church podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to remind you that our ministry is supported 100% by listeners like you. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, please visit revolutionchurch.com slash donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website. Sunday. Happy Pentecost. It's time to do some snake handling, speaking in tongues. We got all the, the greatest hits lined up <laughs> to celebrate. Everyone's kind of shuffling in. As probably everyone in here is aware of, Wake is going on right now. And I realized yesterday that it would be literally going on like right now, as in the last day of wake is starting at the same time as our Sunday live stream today. And so I was talking to Jay last night. It's kind of funny. And I, I realized that and I was like, oh man, you know, if people listen to us or if we were at all effective in our promotions and uh, endorsing of wake, if we were successful, then we won't have anyone at revolution tomorrow. And he said, oh, well, that's just the real test. For our true followers is if they show up, even after we explicitly told them not to. <laughs> so yes, Steve, happy uh, Pentecost. We're all going to get slain in the spirit. Our top subscribers, our top uh, listeners, I've, I've sent boxes full of snakes to your home addresses that we got from you when we were sending out the thank you notes for donations. So don't worry, I'll... Be watching your front door there for the UPS man bringing a box full of snakes so you can participate at home. Oh, yeah, Ray's, Ray, I saw you talking about this online, uh, I think yesterday. Ray says, I just couldn't pay for an online festival, which is happening in a pub 20 minutes from me, but COVID won't let me in. Yeah, dude, I saw you posting about that. That that I cannot imagine how frustrating that is. And it's I guess it's kind of a give and take because I feel a little bit guilty because for me... This, you know, COVID and it being an online only event this year has made it actually doable, has made it conceivable and possible for me to attend for the first year. So being a little selfish there, but uh, I found a silver lining. Sorry, Ray. But no, that that dude, that is super, super frustrating, I'm sure. So yeah, I, was, I was saying, I was talking to Jay last night about promoting Wake and everything, and, and right now the last day of it is kicking off, just kicked off when I started my live stream here. Jay was supposed to be, he was going to be talking this morning. Oh, I think that is Jay checking in there. Oh, it is Jay. Uh, but he's under the weather, and we just, I feel like stuff just keeps, keeps getting kicked around back and forth, and uh, his sweet little boy Milo is sick, and then Jay fell sick, and so we had to reschedule some congregation calls, but um, I'm pretty sure those people who we're rescheduling with are on right now as well, so... So everyone's all in the loop. Everyone's all in the know. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> funny. I made a note to mention, Ray, what you were just saying about... Oh, you said something else down here. Don't get me wrong. It's great for people. Oh, yeah. For sure, for sure, for sure. Totally. I was just kind of half joking about about it being a good thing for me. It is, it is pretty sweet, though, that I'm able to attend it because, yeah, Wake was a big influence on me. You know, obviously, I, I hadn't ever attended it 
until this year, just the online uh, 2021 version. But uh, it, it was a huge influence on me primarily because of a single talk that Barry Taylor gave at, uh, I'm not sure what year of Wake it was. It was probably about 10 years ago or so, give or take around there. And he gave a talk on the transfiguration in the book of Mark. And then at that same year's Wake Festival, uh, John Caputo also gave a talk that was that really, really heavily impacted me. Caputo's is a little bit harder for me to, to nail down. He was, he was talking about the event in Christianity. If you want to see the video, you can, you can YouTube search uh, John Caputo, the event, and it'll pop up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ray's talking about that Barry Taylor talk. Yeah, the one uh, where, where he ends with the line, there is no God and we are his disciples. That's his takeaway from the Transfiguration story. When I first heard that talk, you know, Barry was like an enigma, you know, he, he was, he was uh, you know, I kind of idolized the guy. And we're, you know, we have a, a, a friendship now. And uh, it's funny because I've, I've asked him about that talk specifically. And he said that he doesn't remember the talk. He doesn't remember the point of it. And, he does, and it, as he recalls, he just came up with that line, there's no God and we are his disciples off the cuff. So yeah, anyway, I did want to say, jumping in to some substance here, I don't have anyone to banter with. I need to find myself a little mini-me. Little Caleb, I, th- I thought about trying to find something I could stick in the background here. I've got this poster. I think it's a Greek Orthodox saint. It almost looks like it might be the likeness of Jesus, but I think it's a, supposed to be a saint. I'm not great with Greek. I've been uh, picking up Koine a little bit, uh, revisiting that a little bit here recently. I studied it for a couple years, but any hoozle. Yeah, so I've been, I've been, like I said, fortunate enough to be taking in Wake and kind of watching the videos as they are posted. And uh, last night, I was watching, full circle, I was watching Barry's talk for this year, or, or a, uh, an interview kind of setup that he did um, with Pete and the woman uh, who's, who's moderating. And just a, a few notes that I took from that talk inspired me to, to write a new talk for today. I have a handful prepared, but with it being wake and all, and, and with some like fresh inspiration i felt like taking on a challenge of writing something new for today and i will i will start by mentioning that i considered actually doing trying to do a pentecost talk for today trying to to keep it on theme with the church calendar with the church holiday and i decided not to so never fear but i did come up with like a, just a page long kind of a, a mini version of what i was thinking about going with so i'm going to open with that and then get into our featured content our regularly scheduled content what i was thinking about the pentecost initially i was thinking that it's kind of a tricky fit with radical theology as it is so mystical and so you know has such kind of almost magical elements to it but then kind of the more that I thought about it thematically, it really actually fits in pretty nicely with some themes that pop up in radical theology and subsequently, you know, death of God theology and then pyro theology, which is kind of the direction that the revolution ship is floating in, you know, kind of gravitating in that direction. To quote Nietzsche in his original Death of God poem, I think he describes a world which can be maybe kind of also inferred like a church without a god is like a a rogue planet hurling through outer space without a sun without a star to keep it focused and balanced and so maybe revolution is like a a rudderless ship 
hurling through the ocean towards radical theology or something like that. Uh, or maybe being pulled in by a whirlpool of, of Pete's uh, gravitas. I, I think that radical theology, specifically death of God theology, fits with the story and the themes behind the Pentecost, particularly the brand of death of God theology that Thomas Altizer was involved in, because specifically Pentecost is a big piece of the puzzle in illuminating, and some might even say in introducing, the third person of God in Scripture, in introducing the Holy Spirit in Scripture, and in this beautifully poetic notion that's found in radical theology of God first as the holy, pure, all-powerful creator, living separate from us, his creation, living up in the paradise and the perfection of heaven, who then decides to descend to the dirty, dusty earth to become incarnated in an imperfect fleshly body like ours, similar to ours, to his creation, you know, in order to better know us, in order to better love us, and in order to experience existence in the way that we do and to complete his expression of divine love for us. And I think that's something that Steve might have mentioned last week, I believe, about God perfecting his grace, perfecting his love through his relationship with us. And that's, I think, a theme that pops up in this radical theology conceptualization of the Trinity is God kind of perfecting his love and his empathy for humanity in lowering himself, in descending to earth, to the dust, to the dirt, and becoming human, becoming the lowly creation, descending from his perfect heavenly crown or heavenly throne, setting down his crown. And then in the third expression of the Trinity after having been Christ and descending into the dirt and dying and being buried in the dirt and literally becoming part of the dirt and decomposing as part of the earth, then in this third person, in this third expression, as the spirit rising and being dispersed among the body, among his creation, among humanity, and and shared by us to other members of the body and to other members of of his creation. And obviously it's a scene, this sharing of the Holy Spirit and this initial gifting from uh, an evangelical understanding uh, from the Father, the gifting of the Spirit to the church. Um, That story is the story of the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So that's my little kind of bite-sized take on the Pentecost, just so I can kind of say, I did it. I uh, marked off a church holiday there real quick. But what I want to focus on today is located in the book of John, chapter 8. John's a really interesting gospel, particularly because it is so kind of mystical, has a a mystic theology to it, a, a really abstract approach to telling the story of Jesus and Jesus's ministry that we find in the gospels. It's much, much more abstract than the other gospels. And it has a, a totally different storytelling approach. Um, it's not as kind of linear and logical and uh, chronologically kind of a historical approach to, to telling a story from the perspective of the narrator, uh, who's a character presumably in the story, especially if you are presuming that the Gospels were written by people who knew Jesus personally, by his followers, who were there witnessing all the stories that they're talking about. But that's neither here, here nor there, really. Um, 
the point is that the book of John is very, very distinctive in its tone and in kind of what it prioritizes, too, I think. And I always found that very attractive. I always found John to be a very attractive gospel for those reasons. I, I didn't really know how to articulate it as a kid growing up memorizing scripture, you know, which is what I guess familiarized me with the book of John and, and the other gospels. I didn't really know how to, what was different about John's approach or the book of John's approach to telling the story of Christ's ministry. But I mean, it just even how it starts out, it starts out kind of mirroring the creation story found in Genesis with the phrase in the beginning, you know, in Genesis one, in the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. It's telling the story of creation. And John tells that story with a little bit of a new spice, a little bit of a new flavor to it, as it is coming from the perspective of the New Testament and of the understanding of God having been incarnated as flesh in the Christ, in Jesus. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W in our English translations, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then it proceeds to describe how everything that was created was created through the word, the logos in Greek. And these things, these ideas of God as the word and as light and God as life keep coming up in John, particularly God as light and life in the gospel of John. And then also the letters of John, which are pretty widely presumed nowadays to not be by the same author, to not be by the same John, if they're by any John for that matter, but they have a similar kind of a metaphysical descriptions and kind of metaphysical shorthand that they rely on for God and describing God as, again, light, life. And then the letters of John also add love, describing God as love. And first John does a beautiful, beautiful job of doing that, of laying out this, what's the word, synonymity? I don't have a Caleb, I can ask for vocabulary help, but like the synonymous nature of God and love. Like, God is love. Love is God. Anyone who loves knows God and is in God, and God is in them. It's all this, these really absolute uh, equivocations between God and love, and it's a beautiful, beautiful, at the very least, poetic expression, if not more than that. But in the, in the Gospel of John, these comparisons continue throughout, and we're going to hear them in John 8 that we're focusing on today. Pull out your Bibles with me. I remember when I'd bring friends to church growing up to our Southern Baptist church who didn't regularly attend church. Whenever the preacher would tell the congregation what they're going to be reading out of for the day, they would pick up the hymnal and try to find the scripture in the hymnal. And I'd be like, you fools, you're not earning Awana bucks like I am for memorizing scripture. All right, so we're going to uh, start in John 8 with verse 12. So John chapter 8, verse 12 Listen for this language about God as light and God as love, or light and life specifically in this passage. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. They're saying you're lying about yourself. You're embellishing just straight up lying. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. 
Yet even if I do, do judge or did judge, other translations say, my judgment is true for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, in the religious law, the law of the Pharisees, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me also bears witness about me, being the second one. Which is kind of interesting, Christ is specifically expressing that himself and the Father are two distinct entities there. Well, and guess what? It's a dichotomy, because, and also expressing that, that he and the Father are one, which is a theme that comes up throughout John, recurring. And so then they, being the Pharisees, said to him, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury of the temple as he was teaching. So that last line in particular is, I think, maybe almost a little bit cheeky even. Uh, Maybe a little bit of a slightly sassy tone coming from Jesus there. Um, The Pharisees ask him, where's your father? And he responds, while standing in the temple, which in Jewish understanding in the religion that he is a teacher of, that he is a rabbi of, according to that tradition, to that understanding, God dwells in the temple. And so the Pharisees are asking him, where's your father? And Jesus is kind of cheekily probably standing maybe next to the entrance that leads to the next entrance that goes to the Holy of Holies kind of thing. You know, the temple had all these uh, layers to it. You had to have different degrees of purity to pass into the increasingly holy layers And then, you know, the Holy of Holies, of course, contained the presence of God, God's self, God themselves. But yeah, Christ is standing there in the temple where God is, presumably, and they're saying, where's your father? And he's he's standing there saying, well, you know, I don't know, where is he? You tell me. If you knew me, you would know where he is. And he's probably just kind of gesturing towards the Holy of Holies, you know. If the Pharisees did know who he even claimed he was, not even touching on who he was, they would get the inference. And a couple of other things stand out to me here in this scripture. And one is that the disciples themselves, it's revealed later in John chapter 8. I don't think that I'm going to get to this verse specifically, but I wanted to mention that the disciples themselves don't know who Christ is referring to when he keeps talking about the Father. They're confused. They probably assume that he's talking about Joseph, in which case... Christ, knowing that he is now at this time a target of the Pharisees and that they're kind of out to get him, you know, maybe he's doing Joseph a little bit of a favor by being so uh, indirect about how he answers questions like, where's your dad? Or, you know, where's your father? Who are you talking about? The other thing that stands out to me about this scripture is that the word for father that's being used in the Greek is just the plain word pater. In our translations, at least in the ones that I'm most familiar with, usually it'll translate the F in father, which is implying that it is a divine name. It's referring to God. It's a proper noun referring to God. Whereas in the original text, first off, the capitalization wouldn't have any significance anyway. Second off, it's not capitalized. It's not set apart. It's not made distinctive to show in any way that it is implying any sort of divinity behind it, either when used by the Pharisees who I don't think had any idea what was being implied, or when it's used by Jesus, who is being kind of cheeky, I think, here. Um, He's saying these things while in the presence, essentially, or just a few rooms away from the unfiltered, unadulterated 
presence of God, which was believed to be so powerful that whenever the priests would go into the Holy of Holies to make offerings to God in God's presence, they would have to have like a rope tied around them because if they went in there and were killed by maybe like touching the Ark of the Covenant or by just by being exposed to the radioactive intensity of uh, unfiltered God energy, then if they were if they died while they were in there, I think they were wearing a bell or something that would also help indicate their status if they were alive or not. Um, and then if they died and they fell over, they'd get pulled out by the rope. So they took it pretty seriously. They took it pretty literally. When we go to church, a lot of times you'll commonly hear expressions like, this is God's house. Church is the temple of the Lord. This is God's house we're going into. I know that like my mom or or Sunday school teachers would say, you know, not to rough house in God's house, not to break anything, not to mess anything up because we're in God's house. But these Pharisees are taking it uber literally to such an extreme that they fully anticipate the very, very possible outcome of them dying by risking putting themselves into direct exposure to the unfiltered presence of God. I think I'm going to continue reading a little bit of the scripture here. I might skip ahead a touch. Actually, I'm just going to pick it up right again in uh, John chapter 8, verse 21 here. So, he, Jesus, said to them, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. He responded saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So they said to him, well, who are you? So they're asking very, very pointed, very direct questions now. And especially coming from the Pharisees, these are extremely direct and straightforward questions. They're trying to, you know, get to the bottom of this. They're trying to kind of catch him red-handed to have something against him to incriminate him and to justify being able to prosecute and to have him die a criminal's death, to have him killed. Who are you? And Jesus said back to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Okay, so that is the verse I was talking about. So he keeps referring to the one who sent me, the one who sent me, who is powerful and who is all-knowing. And then he keeps also referencing his Father. And so it's saying here that they did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about his father. And so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And this actually, my ESV version here isn't, isn't noting this, but when, but in the Greek again, when he, when he says this, that I am, in English we say I am he, but it's literally ego and me, which is a direct reference to the burning bush. And in the Old Testament, asking God who God is and God saying, I am, or tell them that I am sent you. Who who shall I say sent me? He says, I am. The focal point of this scripture and of my talk today is this verse. starts in 31. Uh, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And here's the kicker right here. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's the focus of my talk today is that assertion, that claim coming from the Son of Man. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
And it kind of begs a couple of questions. One being, what is this truth? This is probably the most direct thing that Jesus says after these 30-something verses of kind of winding, twisting logic that he's presenting, talking about, if you knew who I am, you'd know who my father is, my father sent me, all these kind of confusing responses that he's been giving to the Pharisees while he's teaching the temple here. But then after he talks about his death, he gives a very direct, assertive statement and says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So he kind of predicts his death, kind of predicts the impending doom, his tragic fate, and then making this assertion that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But then it is a very direct assertion, but he doesn't define what the truth is or what you'll be freed from. But it, does, it, it sets up a lot that, that I think becomes more clear and maybe takes some critical thinking along with kind of stepping back and seeing the bigger picture to be able to kind of fit this puzzle together. And what a promise, what a guarantee that is, right? Like to be told by the authority of the world, I suppose, um, or to whatever extent the disciples understood the authority of Christ to extend, that they would know the truth, sounds great, and that they would be set free in knowing, just in knowing this truth. Now, they don't know what they're being freed from because as the scripture continues, as the story continues, the disciples say, oh, what are you talking about? We're not, you know, we're not enslaved. What, what are we going to be freed from? They don't understand what Christ is talking about. Big surprise, surprise, surprise. They're confused. And, you know, Jesus doesn't really directly answer those questions at that time either. But I think that there are a lot of hints to tell us what the truth is and what it will free us from in this scripture. Hints like what Christ is saying and how he is saying it, how he's expressing it. That's a part of why I spent um, sometime last night when I was assembling this talk uh, in, in the Greek. Sacrificed a little bit of sleep over it, but it seemed important to me because the phrasing and the specific way that Christ is presenting these ideas and assembling these thoughts, I think is very important and maybe offers a little bit of clarity, a little bit of light at the end of this winding, winding, confusing tunnel that he's navigating And I think also something important is where he's saying it, which is in the temple, and then also how he is saying it. He's talking in this passage, obviously, he's talking about a lot of really, really lofty claims, you know? There's not his kind of familiar practical parables. And, you know, some of Christ's parables are almost like little bits of kind of Confucian wisdom, you know, like practical, pragmatic wisdom, like almost like a Goofus and Galliant comics. Where, you know, like, Goofus never washes his hands when he walks out of the bathroom. You know, Galleon always washes his hands and sings happy birthday under warm water or whatever. Like with, with Christ's parables about, like, um, you know, the father told this son to uh, finish doing all these chores around the farm and told this son that he didn't have to do any chores. But then the son who said he would do the chores didn't end up doing them, and the other one did end up doing them. And, you know, it's like these proverbs that are contained in these parables. Um, Whereas this is like a really lofty, kind of fitting dialogue going on between Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus and the disciples, kind of fitting for the Gospel of John, because it is such a lofty and heady and philosophical take on the Gospel. 
And like I mentioned earlier, I think that there's a little bit of cheekiness, a little bit of side glances going on here, maybe between Jesus and the disciples to an extent, maybe between Jesus and the presence of God in the Holy of Holies to an extent. You know, who knows? Jesus kind of ha- he has an attitude and he's also uh, preoccupied to probably a pretty significant extent by the horrible, horrible death that he's about to be facing. He's about to be essentially murdered, but but uh, sentenced to a an awful criminal death. And in this passage, in this scripture too, he is directly asked who he is. And he's kind of talking in circles, like I alluded to before, about who his father is. He's absolutely being evasive and unclear about who his father is. And then he's directly asked about who he is. And that is the most direct question that the Pharisees have asked him yet chronologically speaking, at least in the book of John, if not chronologically in the overall story that's contained in all the other gospels as well. But from the legalists, from the the fundamentalists of his faith, of Christ's faith, of Judaism, from the Pharisees, the legalists, the fundamentalists, comes this direct question the Pharisees, you know, I, I, I was thinking about it, and you got to give some credit to the Pharisees. If, if anyone, and I think Jay kind of planted this idea in my, in my head a few weeks ago, talking about the Pharisees, um, and some of you who, who heard that talk might see where I got this from, but if anyone were to earn their way into the kingdom of heaven through the law, it was the Pharisees. These were some devoted dudes these guys were super, super hardcore, counting the number of steps that they took, following all these really, really stringent mosaic laws around diet and what they could do when they could do it. Just such an exhaustive list of all these if-thens, of all these, you know, if this is the situation, then this is the appropriate, correct way to act that is in accordance with the law. And guess what? If you're out of accordance with the law, then you're damned, then you're, you're separated from holiness, from the divine source of love and holiness from God. And so if anyone was going to earn their way through the law into the presence of God, it was the Pharisees. They were hardcore. And I think that in order to be a Pharisee, you'd have to be pretty pretty self-absorbed as well as being so devoted and and kind of hardcore committed to this to pay that much attention to yourself, to your behaviors, to the number of steps that you're taking. I mean, there's a lot of math involved in this, right? probably a lot of tables and charts and figures going into this, into being a Pharisee. These legalists, these fundamentalists are asking him, asking Christ who he was, point blank, and what he actually claimed to be, what or who he claimed to be. And they also asked him, you know, to explain again about his father, where is your father? And like I started to mention earlier, when they're saying father, they're using the, the Greek word pater, which is just a familial label for father. It's not the familiar Abba that Christ uses once ever in scripture. He uses in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying and he gets so stressed out that he sweats blood and then he calls God Abba Father, which is loosely like dad or daddy. It's an endearing, very familiar way to refer to your father. It's interesting to me too that Christ is walking up to his crucifixion in this passage. It's probably safe to assume that he's obsessed to some degree and at least worried about it. I mean, he sweats blood over it. And I think that also from around this point on, and particularly from his prayer sessions in the Garden of Gethsemane on, 
that Christ is pursuing a constant dialogue with the Father. He's wanting to have this constant conversation with the Father. And if you'll recall, he's not directly heard from the Father since his baptism, since he first started his ministry. He hasn't had an audible check-in from God the Father since his baptism, since God came to bless his ministry and say, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. But Christ is looking for an answer. He's having a very one-sided conversation, and he's trying to engage in an exchange with the Father about wanting to, oh, hey, Heather, I see Heather's popping in to say hi. Hello. About wanting the Father to take this cup from him, about him dreading the task ahead of him. Oh, Heather says that she's doing wake right now. See, Heather juggled both, wake and revolution. She's a good one. She'll keep her. Yeah, so I think Jesus is a constant conversation or pursuing a constant conversation with the Father, that he wants to be in a dialogue, in a two-way dialogue with the Father leading up to his crucifixion. And then, of course, there is probably the most epic and poetic and beautiful and complex and contradictory moment in the New Testament, maybe in all of Scripture, when Christ is forsaken by God on the cross. And maybe that is just a vocalization of the abandonment and the lack of the presence of God that he's been sensing since he's been trying to have this conversation with God in the Garden of Gethsemane, and maybe even since his baptism, since he last directly heard the voice of God speaking to him from the clouds and showing approval, speaking positively, blessing his ministry. And I think that this epic moment that we see of Christ being abandoned by God or feeling abandoned by God, of God being abandoned by God, is a very attractive, dramatic, pivotal moment for a lot of different reasons. And uh, I know it, it certainly is these things to Peter Rollins. Of course, can't have a revolution talk without mentioning the Rollins name. And I know that this Christ being abandoned on the cross instigates a series of events that Peter just loves. So, on the cross, instance before his death, according to, I think in Mark, it is the last thing he says before taking his final breath. And there are other accounts in other gospels of him, you know, saying they don't know what they're doing. I, I believe that the chronology of when he says what, he says like 17 different phrases in total. He's either seven or 17 on the cross during his crucifixion, his death, his murder. So the thing that spurs this series of events that is so important in pyrotheology particularly, is Christ being abandoned by God and this, as Peter puts it, this moment of atheism, of total abandon. And it's kind of a resignation and a conclusion to the one-sided conversation that Christ has been having, the desired dialogue, the desired conversation that he's been trying to spur between himself and God. And then he kind of resigns doesn't hear any response from God, feels abandoned and forsaken on the cross, feels a lack of God's presence, angrily, I'm sure, screams to the heavens, why have you forsaken me? Then breathes his last breath and dies. And like I said, this is the moment where God has the realization, at least the emotional revelation, at least the emotional revelation that leads to this expression of abandonment to this expression of feeling absolutely abandoned by not only the life force, the love force of God, but by 
his own force, by his, his, own, his own nature, his own self. God is made an atheist in this moment. God is abandoned by God. God is convicted of the lack of existence of God in this moment. Heavy stuff, really. And then there is an earthquake. This is another event in the series of events that I was referring to earlier that Peter just loves. It's really important in central in pirate theology. So there's this earthquake, which then causes a rip in a very, very important curtain that's located in the temple that is sectioning off the Holy of Holies. It's this old curtain or veil that God gave the Israelites instructions in Exodus how to make. You know, God was always giving them these really, really specific, like, blueprints for building things in the Old Testament. You know, like, the ark was laid out bit by bit. The temple, oh my goodness, that's an exhausting thing to read about, is all the architecture and requirements for the measurements and everything, the specifications, all the specs that are required for the temple. And he also lays out how to make this veil, this very, very heavy, thick veil that is to keep people out from the presence of God or to at least denote a line where we're agreeing and entering into it like a contract and saying, okay, now I'm kind of putting my life at risk, kind of taking it in my own hands as it were by stepping into the way of this, like I said earlier, almost like this radioactive energy that is God's presence. And so the veil rips. And the reason that this is so important to the expressions of theology that I've heard Peter Rollins make and to pirate theology, I can say that more confidently because that's more laid out and defined to whatever degree Peter defines things. But it is a prestige. It is the moment of prestige. It is a revelatory moment. Uh, and, and there's this understanding that Peter has of God as the divine magician. And magicians have the big reveal at the end of the illusion, at the end of the trick, at the climax of the performance, of the story that they're telling, of the narrative, the prestige, the reveal. And that happens in the moment when God is abandoned by God, the curtain rips in the temple, and it is revealed to any passerby, to the public, to the people of God, to the sons of Abraham, to the children of Israel, that the Holy of Holies is empty. That God's not in there. And that's the big prestige. That's the big reveal. And this kind of brings us back to the claim that Christ made in John 8.32 to this idea of knowing the truth and then that truth setting you free. And like I asked earlier, well, what's that truth and what is it freeing us from? And I'd like to consider today maybe that this freeing truth might be found behind that curtain after all, behind that reveal of nothing. Maybe that in itself is a reveal of something that is more powerful and has more gravity and implication to it than we could ever realize. And to maybe consider and encourage you to consider the possibility that the truth that Christ refers to is the fact that the temple has not been serving its purpose or its, its advertised purpose, its proclaimed, presumed purpose. And that there's nothing special, there's nothing secret or hidden behind this mystical curtain. And I'm, I'm going to compare this to my other source today. My other source for my talk today is The Wizard of Oz. That's a little bit more on brand for revolution, huh? And of course, the quote that I want to point to in The Wizard of Oz is the moment of revelation of prestige in The Wizard of Oz as well, 
which involves the man who's controlling the wizard. Spoiler alerts, I guess, for The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> oh yeah, the film is colored also. Spoiler alert. It's a talkie and it has color. But I'm just being silly. But the man controlling The Wizard of Oz says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to this distraction behind the curtain. Disregard this distracting disappointment behind the curtain. Keep suspending your disbelief, in other words. Continue to suspend your disbelief that the Wizard of Oz truly is a magic, all-powerful, disembodied, scary, floating head that is very, very busy, apparently, doing some very, very important work and can't <laughs> and couldn't meet with Dorothy or kept procrastinating meeting up with our heroes of that story. And, of course, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, of course, Dorothy is a sweet, kind, young girl who gets carried away from her Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen on their farm in Tatooine. Wait a minute. Uh, just making more silly jokes. I write down these little jokes in my talks, and then I'm, I'm just not selling them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so she gets lost in the fantastical kind of fantasy land of Oz, where her only hope for safe passage back to her home, back to the security and safety of her home and to her family, her loved ones, is to appeal to the mercy and the graces of the great and powerful, mysterious Wizard of Oz. And on her way to make her case before the wizard, she enlists the help of some friends who also need favors from the omnipotent wizard, including a scarecrow who needs a brain, a tin man who needs a heart, and last, a lion who needs courage. I see Jim giving me an LOL emoji. I hope that that's in reference to my dumb Star Wars jokes. Maybe I'll add a laugh track. I do add, you know, I'm in charge of the, the podcast audio. Maybe I'll splice in a laugh track. So she has these friends who are lacking things. They have lacks, right? They have holes in their hearts. How about that? Donut repairman. Life without Jesus is like a donut. So when they finally reach the wizard and they make it into his chambers, which is a whole to do in itself, and they finally get to meet with him, they figure out that the so-called wizard is just an illusion, is just the product of Lights, mirrors, smoke, little magical tricks of the trade, I guess, that are used to create these illusions. The small tricks that make up the bigger trick. The wizard as a magical entity, as that definition, is a lie. Is an illusion. And it kind of raises this question because all that we're left with then behind the curtain is this kind of short, chubby guy. White hair, this kind of older man. Very non-threatening, very gentle looking. And it's just him standing there pulling a bunch of levers, literally pulling the strings to operate the illusion of the wizard. As the participant, as the viewer of the film or as the reader of the book, we're left with the question, was the wizard a lie? Was the wizard as a concept made up, fabricated? Was there ever any wizard? Is there still a wizard? There's a lot of questions, obviously. There's the first obvious conclusion, which is that there is no wizard of Oz, and that this little man, who's a fellow native of Tatooine, I mean Kansas, along with Dorothy, this kind of floundering traveling salesman named Frank Morgan, is he the real wizard? Just kind of controlling a a bigger puppet, a more intimidating representation of himself. Or is the wizard's true self alive in the ideas that the wizard represents? 
is the wizard actually kept alive, made alive, sustained by the love that was lacked by the Tin Man, the intelligence lacked by the, the Scarecrow, the courage lacked by the Lion, and the home and sense of security lacked by Dorothy. Is that the wizard? Is the wizard an abstract idea? Is the wizard actually these noble concepts just represented by whatever vessel the concepts are being lived out by? Is it possible that whoever is embodying these noble virtues, these ethics, is being elevated to the level of the wizard? Is the wizard really the emissaries or the ambassadors, the, the, the good witch, Glinda, who are almost parallels to like avatars in Hinduism? They're representatives of the wizard. They're reflections of the wizard. They're different tones, different textures of the wizard. Is the wizard humanity? Is the wizard made up of the munchkins in Munchkinland and the collective people with their ethical ideals and their aspirations that they want to pursue? Or is the wizard these ethics separated from the people who hold the ethics from the, the creatures, I guess? The mun- I think munchkins are people. I'm going to get canceled saying that, aren't I? God. Um, is the wizard a personification of these ethics so that we are enabled to interact with the ethics more directly. Is the wizards being personified for us, or the ethics rather being personified as the wizard, is that just a a technique or a mode implemented by the wizard or by the ethics or by us maybe imposed upon the ethics so that we can interact with them and wrestle with them and love them and hate them and challenge them? abstract kind of intangible values given flesh or made incarnate for us wink wink and so in the story of the wizard of oz is the truth that sets you free within this story i'm going to posit that it is that it is the realization that there is no no threat i'm gonna say that there's no threat behind the curtain there is a man behind the curtain But there's no threat behind the curtain. There is no scary wizard. There is no floating green disembodied head with all this smoke and lightning and thunder sounds. There is no scary threat behind the curtain. And I'm just going to make the parallel super blunt and say that I would propose that that is also the truth that is freeing, that is seen in the big reveal, the prestige of the Holy of Holies being empty. And you may say, well, no, that's a letdown. That's a disappointment if the Holy of Holies is empty, if God isn't in there, if God isn't incarnate in there, available to us, then that's like bad news, right? Well, no, I don't think it is because that God, that conceptualization of God, the God that was defined by that old vocabulary was an angry, vindictive To use his own phrasing, a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, serving the iniquities upon the children of the, what is it, it's generations. Your children's children will be paying for your sins in eternal damnation. You know, I think this is a relief. I think this is good news. I used to, I can speak from my personal experience, I used to live in fear of an angry father God, an angry man in the sky And the revelation, there was a gradual revelation for me in my experience that this was not 
real or that this was not a threat behind the curtain, that God was not a threat behind the curtain, was freeing, so freeing, a weight lifted. And I see so many Western Christians, I know personally know and love so many evangelicals who are living in fear of God, of the sky man, of this concept of God, this version of God that has been presented to them that is an angry, vindictive parent. And letting go of that, coming to terms with an empty, open curtain with the lack of existence of this angry sky man is freeing. And knowledge of that truth does set you free. There are a few things that I can assertively say when quoting scripture that I can assertively say I 100% on this. And that's one of them. That knowledge of that truth is freeing. And I experience that daily. And that to me is good news to be shared. Would we even want this older conceptualization of God the Father? Do we aim for the sum of our idealized ethics, that the sum of those ideals, do we aim for that to be an intimidating entity? Do we aim for that which embodies pure, perfect love, unconditional love? Do we want that to be a fear-inspiring, fear-inducing force? I don't think so. I mean for that to be rhetorical. I mean for that to be an obvious no. Although fear is a very effective tactic in manipulating people, especially when it comes to things that are unseen. That's why passion plays are so effective, unfortunately. Or even like The Passion of the Christ, that film. It's kind of the horror elements to it that would kind of scare you into this unhealthy fear of God, of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I don't think it's that type of fear. And to kind of get one tiny little last drop out of my Wizard of Oz comparison, let's say, and this is a thinly veiled comparison, let's say that some will respond and ask in response to the assertion that there is no threat behind the curtain. They'll ask in response, well, is the wizard based on a historical figure? Was there once a real wizard? And now I'm going to use that as a transition to an equally thinly veiled metaphor comparison with Santa Claus and say like how Santa Claus is based on the historical St. Nicholas who used to give gifts to needy children in his area at Christmas time or like Robin Hood, how the historical Robin Hood was essentially likely a terrorist (laughs) and this idolized idealized, I guess idealized and idolized um, character that we've come up with this soft cartoon Fox. Um, But, you know, learning about St. Nick, learning about the historical version that our myth is based on is informative and illuminating and inspiring. And at the same time, it's largely speculation. It's fun to think about. That's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, You know, but even if someone compiled an exhaustive biography of St. Nicholas, backed up with scientific data and DNA evidence and 
old literature like uh, censuses and journals and diaries and obituaries and clips from newspapers and old IDs and and official documents like uh, birth certificates and stuff like that. Even if someone proved like this is the historical accurate portrait of St. Nicholas, what actual effect does knowing the true nature of this demystified real person, what effect does that actually have on my current values or what I see as being important? How does it affect that? How does it affect how I'm going to go through my day treating others and treating myself? And how does it affect anything that matters and that causes a direct reaction around me or in me in any moment in life? If I find that the bland, historically accurate analog for my useful, intentionally fabricated mythical hero, if I find that the historical analog of that hero was flawed, we'll say that Robin Hood struggled with uh, self-regulation and substance abuse, does that information then legitimately devalue my own concern for my own moderation and my own discernment does then devalue those ethics and take them down a notch? No, not at all. Not in the slightest. Maybe that's kind of the the sentiment behind like don't meet your idols is like the historical factual version is not going to necessarily line up with the mythological version and I don't think it's supposed to. I don't think it matters either. Another question I'm going to ask is real quick is do we then throw out and disown the use of a Santa or of a, a mythological hero, a mythical type character as a stand-in that embodies the ethical and moral traits that we find desirable and noble and worth pursuing after and amending our actions for in the pursuit of, let's say, the kingdom. Um, do we throw out that Santa and disown all those mythical stand-ins? Maybe. I mean, we can. I was kind of going in the direction to say no, but no, we, we can though. If we need to find a new analog for our values, then let's do it. The wizard and Santa are fabricated approximations. They're proxies. They're symbols for higher ideals that we cannot sum up in a simple term or a simple gesture. So if we do need to recast the wizard or we conclude that we need to replace Santa or deconstruct our God. I was dancing around it. Just going to say it. If we need to deconstruct our God, our perception of our God, because these shorthands have become old and stale and outdated and irrelevant, then sure, then yeah, let's do that. Let's encourage that. Let's make safe, encouraging environment to do that. That's productive. And that's a huge task, but I think it's one that is worth taking on. I think that the ends justify the means that it is rewarding, and it has been anyway in my own application of that. And I would say that if you do choose that path of deconstructing and disassembling your God, of taking it apart so you can see how it works, of prying open the curtain so you can see if there's anything back there, or see what's not back there, which is just as valuable information, I would would hope that we can remember, that we can remind ourselves that when... Not if, but when one day our new symbol or our new avatar eventually becomes inevitably so far removed from our original intent and the context and the original variables that it was reacting to when we made it, when we designed it, our avatar or our symbol, that we would remember that it was, it was reacting to a specific time and we were making it fit for us in our circumstance, 
And so we should hope that critical thinkers of the newer generations will then come along and trash our versions of the avatars, our versions of these iterations of metaphors for truths that we cannot touch or cannot even describe effectively with the vocabulary that we have. Because, you know, we want critical thinkers to be picking apart what we assembled because that is in the same vein, that is in the same spirit that we initially disassembled the tools that were given to us. Because instead of striving to build this perfect, flawless snapshot or the still image of our expression of divine perfection, instead of doing that and instead of expecting ourselves to encapsulate an end-all, final, complete version of the flawed tools that we use to navigate daily life, instead, maybe we would be better off and also be better paying it forward and better serving and preparing those to come after us by, rather than passing along, this static, frozen ideal of our proud, precious take on ideals and perfections. Instead, we build for them a revisable system, a system that encourages revision and invites critical examination and frequent renewal. A self-cleaning, if you will, self-renewing, even self-destructive system and vocabulary around the holy, a self-renewing, self-destroying, self-replenishing, you know, resurrection, the cycle of death and resurrection, something that adheres to this reflected in our vocabulary that we choose in the moment to best reflect how we understand and perceive and interact with the things that we call holy and that we see as being divine. And I know it sounds a bit odd, but by trying to model a fluid use of subjective vocabulary, of adaptive vocabulary, we set an example for future inevitable revisions by other critical thinkers to follow us who inherit whatever, we, whatever we've put together, whatever we've assembled. So long as the world keeps moving, so too must our tools that we use to interact with it. Our tools have to keep adapting as the world keeps adapting. And the world's going to keep on adapting and changing and evolving. And so we need fluid expressions of unchanging truth. And that's a distinction that I've made before that I recall Greg, my dad, who might still be around here, expressing appreciation that I clarified that it's not necessarily the truth that is shifting and moving and evolving and adapting, but it is our expression and our vocabulary and our tools that we're using to interact with the unchanging truth. And kind of almost like see these gears. I can all see like a representation in my head. Maybe I should try to make a graph of it sometime. But that's the best way I think that I can put that into words right now. Um, We also, in this way, we can also empower future generations as they crawl and inch and labor slowly towards realizing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. To keep refreshing and amending tools like their vocabulary for holy and divine topics or like the tools that they use to interact with the objects, the people, and the elements around them. Where the practice of persistent learning and growth is not being observed, 
we wind up with situations like an extreme example in the Catholic Church when the only available source for the public's spiritual, specifically Christian spirituality and nourishment and guidance was using actual, the literal vocabulary of an actual dead language. Like how much more extreme could that get by only giving masses in Latin, by making the actual words of scripture only available to those with extremely high educations, only those who could understand Latin, not only written, but to the extent that they could understand it spoken, a dead language spoken by their priest. They're the only ones who could understand it. And the public, the common folk, were kind of in a sense suffering from the church weaponizing the detachment or the separation of substance from nourishment, which is usually a given. A lesser example of this kind of distancing and um, clinging to old vocabulary to an extent that is unhealthy after it's become outdated and then it becomes almost like counterproductive to engage with certain things that are related to spirituality and Christianity using such limited vocabulary. The most extreme example there of using an old tool to try to engage with spirituality is an old vocabulary, which I've been using as a metaphor, now using that literally to say using a dead language in Catholic masses, using the dead language of Latin in Catholic masses. And then a less extreme example of that would be like King James only churches or King James only, which I don't, I don't in, innately in and of itself as a practice have any problem with that, any objection to that. I think that King James version of translations of scripture is very poetic and very beautiful and uh, is a a version, is a a dialect of the language. A lot of times people think it's Old English, but Old English isn't even mutually intelligible with modern English. But, you know, it's just this little expression of the type of English that was spoken, uh, what was that, 1600s or so. Uh, It's after Elizabethan Victorian English you know, well after Shakespeare's times and all that. But it's, I think it's cool. I think it's pretty. I'm a language nerd. And so I think it's, I think it's pretty. I think it's a cool option to have. But if you have a church, if you have an environment that is exclusively mandating exclusive use of King James Version Bibles, particularly when they're making everyone who isn't a language nerd, who isn't like obsessed with language and disambiguating vocabulary and syntax and grammar and things like that. Some people, right? Me. Um, to make everyone have to subject themselves to this, uh, you know, apart from the, the artistic value of it, this otherwise confusing dialect of English, especially for the modern English speaker. So yeah, you have to ask, well, what other motivation could there be for mandating this other than wanting people to use outdated tools, wanting people to use less effective tools? Because the motivation of the Catholic Church in exclusively using Latin in their services was to intentionally distance people from being able to read scripture for themselves, which is a malicious and arguably even an evil practice. Is this being encouraged out of a positive intent, even just an innocent intent, or is it actually coming from a malicious and manipulative place, which is the most dangerous scenario? Anywho, um, One other thing to keep in mind when talking about the vocabulary and the references and cultural landmarks that we use, I think that we need to remember not to treat ours, our vocabulary, our cultural landmarks, our touchstones, 
not to regard ours as like precious. I keep using that word precious as in like to not put them on too high of a pedestal, to not regard them beyond their actual value. And especially under the excuse of them being holy or needing to be guarded and revered when actually the reason that they're being handled so gently isn't out of reverence, but it is because they're fragile. And a tool that is so fragile needs to be broken and replaced. Deciding when it needs to be amended and adjusted and things like that is going to keep us more relevant and is going to keep the topics that we're discussing and that we're interacting with more up-to-date, more accurate in how we understand them and in how we understand their effects on us and on on the world. Yeah, so this idea of having a living theology that challenges presumed meanings of scripture and applications in practical situations and in doctrines. The vocabulary that we use in doctrine is extremely, extremely important. Having this, this living, active, adaptive theology and living, adaptive vocabulary, especially in dealing with Christian church terms. And also, by having a living and adaptive theology, we leave room to say things like, okay, I know, you know, in my heart, I both feel and know that God is love. And I know that God's spirit being active, being observed as active in members of the body can resemble a loving, selfless parent who is wise and strong, yet gentle and forgiving. And I also know that my sister, in her history, had, this is just an example, had, my sister had some awful abusive years with the church, people abusing their power in order to abuse and traumatize her selfishly and, and for evil ends, cruelly traumatizing her. And so she has had to distance herself, and this is hypothetical again, and sorry if this is true, I probably should give a trigger warning, but let's say that she has to distance herself from all things church-related because she's easily triggered and reminded of the trauma and the abuse that she was subjected to. And so, she does not identify with the term Christian at all. She doesn't want anything to do with it. She doesn't want anything to do with this kind of divine avatar this incarnation of God that we call Jesus. And getting nitpicky, speaking of vocabulary, um, he, wasn't even, he wasn't even actually called Jesus. If you want to be nitpicky, you want to be exact, and you want to be precise, find this perfect vocabulary, this perfect stagnant vocabulary, calling Yeshua Jesus, which is actually just an, uh, an, a westernization of the Greek version of the name Joshua. So, Jesus to the Greek, Jesus in Hebrew to Greek, Jesus to uh, a westernization of that Jesus. I's become J's in westernization. So let's say, okay, I know these things to be true. And the doctrine and theology that's being presented to me as fact, and that I maybe even can back up in scripture uh, with my current understanding of you know, Christian vocabulary, church vocabulary, that would suggest that because my sister has no place for Christianity as she understands it, the Christian God as she understands him, Jesus as she understands him in her life, because of those things, she is damned. She is destined, fated, 
You know what? And a lot of understanding is not even because of those things, but rather because she wasn't elect, because she wasn't chosen. But either way, she is destined for eternal conscious torment that was cleverly and perfectly crafted to be the worst imaginable torture crafted by your creator, crafted by the person who made the engine, who knows the weaknesses and the strengths, who knows how to manipulate it, who knows exactly where every sweet spot is. This loving parent is so just and loving, of course, but also just that they have to subject any shortcoming to eternal conscious torment. That doesn't sit right for a lot of people. It doesn't sit right for me. Holding your theology without white-knuckling it and without a firm grip, you know, maybe firm in the sense that you're always engaging with it and you're very active with it, but not firm in the sense that it is required to be stagnant or you're trying to make it be stagnant holding a more loose grip on your theology allows for some room to say, hey, this isn't sitting right, and so let's investigate, at least. Not, this isn't sitting right, and so therefore I'm right, and any ancient wisdom presented to me can't teach me anything I don't know. I'm not making that case. I'm saying that at least it leaves room for critical thinking when we have an active, breathing, living theology. (sighs) I swear, y'all, this is the last page of my notes. Cheesy, crazy. I should have just made this a two-parter, huh? Um, so also, this is the last point that I make about the living theology. Um, it allows us also to be empowered in claiming ownership over our values and empowering ourselves and finding responsibility for ourselves as adults without Santa anymore, without the lifeguard behind the curtain anymore. It empowers us to no longer live in fear of an angry, jealous, fickle sky man. Because the truth sets us free from that. The truth that that is not the eternal nature of God sets us free and we can finally breathe again. We're finally able to go through life without the crippling fear of an angry, unstable, power-crazed father whose secret password must be solved before you die. Otherwise, you'll wind up with the overwhelming majority. This is shocking if you think about it. The overwhelming majority of his other beloved children in constant, perfectly executed torture designed for you by your creator. Maximum capacity, constant torment, torture, pain for the vast majority of his kids. Some vessels are made for destruction. Most vessels, apparently. Because most people who have ever lived have not said the sinner's prayer. So, as a little wrap-up piece of advice, if we are to engage in such a critical, critically-minded approach to our theology... I would encourage us to be aware that a future generation may well say to you and will hopefully say to you, yeah, yeah, we get it. The grace is universal. This is just an example, of course. The grace is universal and love is inclusive. Like you all are so obsessed with. Yeah, 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 that's great. But we want to focus on things that we feel like we've been kind of shorted. Things that we feel 
haven't been focused on enough, like structure and dogma. We want to focus on these things for a while now, the new generation might say, because you all are so obsessed with grace and love. And they might say, you know, we feel out of balance in this in these areas, and so we want to focus on these things. And and you know, in that moment, we might just respond to them, well, that's just what we were oversaturated with and 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 pushing against that you are now that you're now turning to. But we need to remember that the dynamic that that focused on structure and regulation was the norm before us. To us, it is old and stale, but to people before us, it became the norm because it was refreshing, because it was wanted, because it was needed, because it had a place, because it fit. It was useful. It reached and it kind of, you know, scratched an itch that needed to be scratched. It, it addressed issues that needed to be addressed. And it became stale over time. That's just how it works. That's the cycle of things. And I'll leave us with this thought that I got from Rob Bell. Truths that resonate in this universe so effectively will keep on popping up in this universe. And I heard him talking about this in response to a question about how he responds when people say, oh, well, the Christian mythos, the Christian story is not original. It's borrowed, you know, like say the idea of the virgin birth was borrowed from this deity in this, I don't know, like Egyptian culture or something like that. Or, oh, this story, you know, even the story from the Old Testament or something like that was borrowed from this tradition and all this stuff. And, and Rob Bell's response to people who accuse, I guess, accuse him or maybe accuse his religion of being derivative his kind of defense or his response, maybe not even defense, is saying when something is so true, it resonates in different places and in different ways and in different applications. It seems to be mirroring itself and reproducing. And we see it and we notice these patterns over and over again because they are so true. It doesn't lessen the degree of truth in the things that we see repeated, the things that we call holy and divine patterns. It rather affirms the strength of this truth and the power of this truth because it keeps manifesting in so many different ways and so many different areas and applications. So that's the end of my massively long talk that is like literally an hour long, longer than any talk I've ever given. Um, If anyone has any afterglow um, thoughts or ideas or questions or anything like that, I'm going to just quickly scroll through Due to poor self-control, I think I've skimmed most of these comments and questions as they were coming in. Naughty, naughty, I need to not do that. I tell Jay he he can't do it, and then I go and do it myself. It's hard to train your eyes away from looking at, especially when we're trained to watch screens all day long. Okay, Ray was commenting on that Barry Taylor talk. Yeah, check that out. Go to YouTube, just type in Barry Taylor Wake. It may be replaced in the running. Like, it may not be the first one to pop up anymore once the new wake content becomes available whatever pete decides to make available to the public uh, on youtube but for now anyways if you if you type into youtube barry taylor wake it'll pop right up barry taylor i think radical theology is the name of the video it's great there is no god and we are his disciples steve says this is great thanks caleb thank you very very much steve i really really appreciate that your encouraging words oh that reminds me you did say something earlier okay steve said god's moment of atheism first time i've heard that profound and haunting thank you for this it is profound and haunting and and it's not my original idea um got that from peter rollins and uh i think that they honestly i i, I try to credit 
ideas that I borrowed. That's the biggest thing that I borrowed in this talk. Like I said, I was inspired by particularly Pete Rollins and Barry were talking about Santa Claus. That's what it was. And about loss of belief in Santa Claus as like an atheistic moment. And that just led to a snowball effect of me chasing little rabbit trails in my mind and um, coming up with this talk. So yeah, so I don't think I'm really missing crediting anything. That's the only reason I make that distinction. Um, Steve uh, later said, have you all read The Zen of Oz? Love that book. No, I've read Return to Oz and The Wizard of Oz. Steve also, Steve, make a lot of comments. I appreciate that. Said, yes, what a great comparison or analogy. Oz theology and spirituality has always fascinated me. Cool. Very, very cool. Didn't realize that was a thing. Makes sense. There's a Tao of Pooh, so it makes sense that there's a Zen of Oz. Lots of nice comments from people. Really appreciate that. Roberta then also said, it's strange how we make up these figures to scare the good into our kids, like Father Christmas versus Krampus, God versus Satan, etc. Yep, totally, Roberta. Yeah, the, the fear, any belief that is born of or reinforced by fear probably requires that fear to make it stick because it's not attractive in and of itself. I mean, I would probably go ahead and, and say that that's a safe, broad statement to assume. Um, yeah, if, if fear is needed, is a, is a necessary ingredient in a belief system of any kind, you know, I don't know if that's healthy. I don't think it is. Steve said to Roberta, the good witch of the North versus the wicked witch of the West. Yeah, that's another parallel. Okay, I don't think that we have... A whole lot of other comments here. Oh, okay, Greg said, me at a King James Only Baptist Church trying to help out. I led a Bible study. A young lady read a passage and then said in a Kentucky accent, I have no idea what I just read. It's about right. Yep, it's a pretty way to put together words in English, but um, it's uh, confusing. You know what, and uh, this is something else. While I'm rambling here, and I don't see people just dropping off like flies, so I'll just make this last comment to kind of close up the afterglow section here, is that I don't think that it is the best. How about that? I don't think it's the best approach when it is required, when learning a new belief system or when appreciating the perspective even of a worldview that you're not familiar with, when it is also required to simultaneously learn a brand new vocabulary and um, particularly new definitions for old words. You know, like when there are words that when you use them in church or in the context of the Bible or Christianity or of faith or spirituality, they mean something entirely different than just when used colloquially. I don't think that's great. And I don't think it's great having these terms like, uh, like salvation, like even salvation. Like what does that even actually mean? Or even conceptualizing God as a king. We don't really have, we Americans anyway, and even modern monarchies don't have parallel understanding to the Bible's hermeneutical contextual understanding of a king. So anyway, yeah, I, I just think it can be dangerous when when there's a separation, when there's a rift, when there's a divide between the literal vocabulary that is used in church or when speaking of spiritual matters and the vocabulary that is used colloquially. Because Christ spoke in Koine Greek. You know, he taught in the vulgar spoken language, not in like the book smart, proper, received pronunciation equivalent of the time pronunciation, excuse me. Yeah, he didn't speak in an eloquent way. 
and he did that intentionally. The Buddha taught in Pali. The Buddha taught in the common tongue of the people, not in the more polished, scholastic version of the language that was coexisting with it, like vulgar Latin and church Latin. Anyways, that's I'm nerding out on my language stuff. Thank you all for sticking with me. I got a couple more quick comments that just popped up here. Sharon said, respectfully, missed too much. We'll have to rewatch. She says, thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Sharon. Appreciate the comment and the encouragement. Christy says, this was so good, Caleb. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. I really appreciate all the encouragement and all the uplifting comments. That is definitely a big love language for me is encouragement and affirming words. So I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. It fills me up and uh, encourages me. So I'm going to go watch some Wake and God bless. Hope you all have a wonderful Sunday, wonderful Pentecost. And um, remember, you should have your care package of certified snake handling snakes showing up via UPS in your driveway before the end of the day. As long as you are a member of Revolution Church Community on Facebook, you'll be getting your own box of angry snakes. Just joking. All right. Love y'all. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. We'd like to remind you that our ministry is supported 100% by listeners like you. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, please visit revolutionchurch.com slash donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website.